morning. It's a very expansive stage this morning. I feel like I'm looking down on everyone, but I'm really not. It just appears that way. So those of you raised in Sunday school or had children's church in your church or even have been in elementary school, well, you know there's this thing called objects lessons, right? Uh, there's an object to illustrate the lesson. So today, every one of you is going to have an object for the object lesson. So it means you've got to go into your purse right now or into your pocket, or into your coat, and because I'm up here, I can see who's not doing it, so I may call you out if you don't do it. But what I want you to do is pull out, I'm prepared for this, I want you to pull out either a bill, or a coin, or a credit card, or an ATM card. Okay? Uh, So pull out one of those. Uh, Those of you who bring your line of credit statement to church on Sunday, you could pull that out if you want. Uh, But a coin, a bill an ATM card, a credit card, and just keep it in your hand. And some of you might be sitting beside somebody who, you know, might want to share that with you at the end of the service, which would be <laughs> kind of cool. So, Dina, what did, what did you pull out? Visa card? She gave you a toonie. Okay, good. So we got a... T- and Don, what did you pull out? Oh, you're just getting it. Okay. Can you, can you better my $10 bill? Oh, I got a V. Yeah, but it depends how much money's on your visa, right? That's the key. So, Ken, what have you got? Credit card. Mark, what have you got? Debit card. Oh, cool. Dave? Apple Pay. Oh, it's kind of cheating a little bit, but... Now, um, there are two subjects that uh, I've trained lots of pastors and taught lots of pastors and been in pastoral ministry a lot myself. There are two subjects that you should not talk about on Sunday morning. One is sex, right? You don't talk about people's personal sex life on Sunday morning. And the other thing you don't talk about is their money. So here we go. We're going to violate one of those. So today, we're going to talk about generosity, not of time, not of expertise, not of energy, but generosity around money. That's what we're going to talk about. And you'll remember that one of the things that we've been trying to emphasize this uh, last number of months is the values that cap holes around three terms, presence, compassion and generosity, that because God is a God who is present with us, because God is a God who is compassionate, because God is a God who is generous, we too can be present and compassionate and generous in other people's lives. So we come today to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, which is probably one of the most profound chapters in the Bible, 8 and 9, on the issue of being generous with our money. So that's what we're going to talk about today, generosity and money. I want you to uh, look at these two quotes from uh, spiritual giants of the past. Martin Luther, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, very famous preacher from a bygone day. With some Christians, the last part of their nature that ever gets sanctified is their pockets. Now, one of the things that um, the Bible presents itself as, and the book of James makes this very clear, is that the Bible is a mirror. So, 
when you read the Bible and when you study the Bible and when you listen to people talk about the Bible, one of the things the Bible does is hold up a mirror for us to look into. And what I want us to do today with our credit cards, ATM cards, Apple Pay devices, uh, bills, coins in our hand is I want all of us, including me, and that's my prayer for myself today, to hold up our approach to money with the mirror of the Bible. So that's what we're going to do. It's not my assessment of your generosity. It's not your assessment of my generosity. It's the Bible's assessment of our generosity. So we're going to look at, through the mirror, we're going to look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're interested in this subject, which many of us are, the subject of money, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is worth a really careful read. I'm only going to talk about a certain segment of it today, the concluding part of it, but it's a great read of how the Bible presents money and generosity and how it's understood. We have lots of financial expertise in this room. We have financial advisors in the room. We have accountants in the room. We have people who invest well in the room. We have people who don't invest well in the room. We have people with lots of money. We have people with very little money. Most of us in this culture associate money with scarcity, not with generosity. And of course, that confuses us. Then we start believing that God is a God of scarcity and not a God of generosity. So this is about generosity and money from this very powerful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So let's look at the first verse, which gives the principle that Paul wants us to root our lives in. And it's an agricultural principle, which makes sense. If, if Paul was writing, if the Holy Spirit was writing scripture today, agricultural images probably wouldn't be used. Other images would be used, computer images or STEM images or computer images or entertainment in- images or movie images. But in the biblical time, because it was an agricultural culture, when Paul starts talking about money, he doesn't talk about money. Okay, and those of you who just woke up, you heard it accurately. When Paul starts talking about money, he doesn't talk about money. He actually talks about the undergirding spiritual principle that for him is rooted in agriculture. And listen to the language. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So if you're a farmer and you expect a harvest at the end of the year, and you want to see plants grow, and you want to see grain come up, and you want to actually have a harvest, you've got to plant in order for that to happen. If you want to reap, you have to sow. If you want consequences, you have to engage in behavior. So a dumb illustration, which makes me look stupid, but those of you who've been a cap for a long time, you've had many of those. The house we used to live in, we had a neighbor who had an amazing garden in the summer. And I remember, it's not a good attitude, it's not very Christian, but I remember coming out in the summer sometimes, and I don't know if you do this with your neighbors, but I'd stand in my yard and look at his yard, and I'd get mad. It's like, it's all these flowers and plants and trees, and and then i look at our garden, and think, how come he has such an amazing garden? Like, why why don't we have this kind of amazing garden? And being married, of course, one uses their spouse for ranting moments, I'd go and talk to Bev and say, like, look at their garden, it's so amazing, their garden, why don't we have a garden like that? And it's one of those profound theological moments called, duh. (laughs) He worked hard in planting season, right? He worked really hard in planting season. And because he reaped and sowed together, and because his sowing led to reaping, the reaping that was happening, the consequences that were happening in summer were, were as a result of the work he did before. 
you know the wisdom literature, one of the definitions of wisdom is you know certain behavior leads to certain consequences and other behavior leads to other consequences. The wise person makes the connection. The foolish person doesn't. So if you don't sow, you will not reap fundamental to agriculture and to farming. And so in this image, Paul is saying, here's the principle that I want you to understand. This money that you have, if you don't sow that money, if you don't contribute that money, if you're not generous with that money, what's going to happen is the harvest will actually show that. There will be consequences to the behavior. Now, the principle is an important one because a lot of us, when it comes to money, start with the principle of scarcity and start with economic and financial issues and we put on our accounting hat rather than the spiritual hat, which is, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you will reap generously. That's the principle. Now, here's the rub. How do we put this into practice? And if we stopped today and did a survey, even in this group here, and said, so what does this mean? Well, we'd have all kinds of theories, right? And and even some Christian theories, which are sometimes the worst, but anyway, that's another subject for another time. But we'd have all sorts of views of how we should deal with our money and what it looks like and how we should be generous. But Paul gives three very specific practices to illustrate the principle. So again, with your money in hand, your card in hand, Listen to what Paul says and see what the mirror shows you about you, as I do with me. Look at verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now the first point, which I think is a really important point, is this assumes participation of all. It assumes that everybody who understands what it means to be Christian recognizes that part of conversion is the conversion of the wallet. Notice Paul doesn't say, and what this means is exactly this percentage, right? We got a bunch of people go around and tell people that. If you're not getting this percentage, then you're up. That's not what he says. He says, each of you should give. There's a responsibility for Christians, not based on their age, not based on their income, not based on their costs, not based on their experience of scarcity, not based on their employment, not based on what their revenue looks like in a given month. There's a responsibility of all of us to give. And so the first message here is not um, kind of a command about exactly what it looks like, but a recognition that all are involved. The context of this whole passage, of course, is Paul is trying to raise money. Uh, Paul, the great fundraiser in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is trying to raise money. And in trying to raise money, he's gone to the Macedonian church and he's asked them for money for a particular cause. And the Macedonians have given. He's gone to the Corinthian church and the Corinthian church said, yeah, we're really eager to give, but they haven't come through. They haven't delivered, basically. And now he comes to them and says, look, all of you need to participate. And it's not equal giving, but it is equal sacrifice. And sometimes in the church, fortunately not in this one, sometimes in the church we give the message that giving is, that the sacrifice is all about how much we give. And we specify a number. But no, the assumption here in the first practice is we're all participants. That's number one. Then notice where Paul goes. What's the second thing, the second way to practice this? This is a decision 
in your heart. One of the areas that I work in, uh, not in raising funds, but in working with quite a few charities and donors around Canada in the whole fundraising field, it's interesting in a world of techniques and gimmicks and strategies of getting people to give money. Have you noticed that? You're on the receiving end of any of that? Got one the other day, you know. Oh, Dr. Wilson. And every time somebody greets me that way on the phone, I think they're after something. You know, they're wanting something. I'm phoning from this organization, and, and I'm on the board of that organization, and you support these people, and I just wanted to phone and thank you. And my immediate response is, you're not phoning to thank me. That's not what this is about. You want more money. This is a technique. You think, and then very quickly after the K gets out of your mouth, you go, more, give me more. Or the organizations that when they send you the thank you letter, they include a form to get more money. You think, I just gave you money. Can we rest in the thank you for a moment? But no, no, we need more money. There's all these techniques, right? All these ways to manipulate people to give. And we're living in a world of manipulation. And in that case, I was very surprised. He said, well, after we had the conversation, he said, oh, it was nice talking with you. I just was phoning to thank you. And he hung up and I went, wow, that's amazing. A fundraiser that's just saying thank you and not saying give me more. It's incredible. What does Paul say? The key to giving is that you have decided in your heart to give. You have decided in your heart to give. Giving and generosity is rooted in our heart, in our inner life, in our own decision. And sometimes when we say, oh, we need more money, or we're not balancing the budget, or the numbers aren't adding up, and we do those kind of things, what we're actually forgetting is people, we can supply information, supply data, But in generosity, we need to decide in our heart to give. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, Paul says this on the same topic. He says, on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. I love that language. Set aside some money in keeping with your income. And we go, how much? What does it mean? Is it net? Is it gross? Is it 10%? He says, just... Just be intentional about this in your heart. Think about it. Don't be sloppy. Just think about your generosity and then act on that. That's the directive. So the first one is all participate. The second one, it's a decision in the heart. But I love this last, this third one. Motivation is important. And those of you who aren't into the Bible or familiar with the Bible or maybe Christian and don't like the Bible, there's lots of those people around now, which I can't figure out. But anyway, that's another subject for another time. But if you're into the Bible, the specificity of the Bible is fascinating here. Because notice what Paul does through the work of the Holy Spirit. He says there's two types of motivation. There's an internal kind of motivation and there's an external kind of motivation. What's the internal motivation? Don't do this reluctantly. The literal Greek phrase here means out of sorrow. Don't go, okay, I'll be generous. No, he said that's not the motivation. God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the number on the bill. And sometimes we think God's looking at the number on the bill. And if you watch religious TV, you get a really clear sense that that's what it's about. It's not about that. It's a recognition that my motivation to be generous with my money comes out of a motivation that's not like, ugh, okay, the internal motivation. But don't you love it in a fundraising world, this next phrase? Don't do it under compulsion, under compulsion. So many times, 
other people push us. Some of us have been in churches like that where the pastor stands up and you feel like, my arm is so tightly wound around my eye. Okay, I'll give, I'll give. I remember being in a church once where the pastor would take his wallet out and open up his wallet. And he said, no, I'm giving $300. How much are you giving? And you felt like, you can't say like a toonie like Lynn, right? You can't do that. You're not going to say a toonie in the face of that. You think, oh, well, if you're giving 300, then, then I'll do that, you know, and I, you match my gift, and you just feel like you're under compulsion. It's sort of the Holy Spirit's being talked about, but they got a gun to your right ear. Give money, give money. No, the motivation is that we don't do this reluctantly out of sorrow. We don't do this under compulsion. We don't give money because somebody said something or because there's something, some organization has got amazing fundraising techniques. So we go, okay, okay, I'll give. Shut up, get, get away from me. Don't talk to me anymore. No, we don't have that kind of motivation. But then what the Bible always does, which is the part I love about the Bible, Bible's not just into the wrecking crew, it's also into the construction gang, right? The Bible doesn't tell you just not what not to do, the Bible also tells you what to do. And what does God love? God loves a cheerful giver. And I don't know what life is like for you, but in areas where I'm reluctant, or I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do this, or in areas where somebody's got a gun to my head and I go, all right, I'm under compulsion, I'll do it. I don't feel much cheer. The literal Greek word here means hilarious. Hilarious. So think of the three options here in motivation. Such a lovely little verse, so simple. But just think of the three options. Here's my $10 bill. So I do this with like, okay, I don't want to, I feel so, ugh, I feel terrible giving this $10. That's like out of reluctance. And, and if James is a fundraiser and James comes and goes, you know, like if you're really spiritual and godly and really love the ministry that I'm involved in, you will give the $10. Like, okay, James, here's my $10. Well, can you take the gun away from my right ear now? I don't want to do this under compulsion. The other one is to be cheerful. To be hilarious. Remember the phrase when you got a promotion, you're laughing all the way to the bank. Well, this is the opposite. This is laughing all the way from the bank, right? You're going to the bank and you're going, this is amazing. I've got opportunity to be generous and to give and to express my generosity by doing it that way. Now, Paul, as the Bible always does now, is not somebody who's just practical. Those of you who are practical and pragmatic and like how-tos, you're going to only be good with about 30% of the Bible. Because about 30% of the Bible is like that. 70% of it now says, now we're going to drop, and we're going to look at what undergirds this. We've got a principle. You sow and you reap. You sow generously, you reap generously. You sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. We've got a practice. Everybody needs to participate, number one. Secondly, there's a deep sense in which it's a heart issue. It's not just a behavior issue. And number three, it needs to be done out of the right motivation, which is hilarious or expressive in a, in a generous, cheerful way. Now Paul answers the why question, the source of the money. Where does the money come from? Well, when I hear that question, where does the money come from, I think of my T4 slips, I think of my invoices, I think of, you know, my end-of-the-year salary things. Some of you who are older and getting pension, you think of, you know, when your CPP comes in or your pension money comes in or your dividends come in or your returns come in. What's the source of the money? Well, the source of the money is found in verse 8. God is able to bless you abundantly. Now, let me, a little caution here. 
I don't know who you are, but I'm sure there's people here who wail away at prosperity preachers, right? All these prosperity preachers, they're all trying to get our money and blah, blah, blah. But don't do the anti-prosperity preacher thing, okay? Follow the passage really carefully, because if you read this passage carefully, you can see why some prosperity preachers actually speak the way they do, because there's some parts of this that look like they're right, okay? So stay tuned on this one. Look at verse 8. God is able to bless you abundantly. One of the disciplines that I've tried to use in my life and one of the disciplines we've tried to use in our marriage is to get disconnected from the fact that my money comes from my salary or my money comes from an organization. My money comes from God. Now, for some of you, that may be a jarring way of thinking about your money. But to hold this up and say, you know, I made this, I get paid at CAP for the work I do here, so you could say this money came from CAP. Well, there's some truth to that, but ultimately this money came from God because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. This is God's provision. Interestingly, that makes it not mine. If this comes from God, then I have a responsibility to steward this because it isn't my money. And it doesn't come from my hard work. It does, but it doesn't. It doesn't come from the organization. It does, but it doesn't. Because fundamentally, God is the one who blesses. Organizations don't bless in a fundamental sense. But read on. Listen to what Paul says. God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, you hear that repetition here? Having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Who gives us the platform to be generous? Not our income. Not our expenses, not our revenue, not our lifestyle, not our age. Who gives us the platform from which to be generous? That comes from God. And notice the language here. The language is all things, all times, all that you need, every good work. The generosity of God is massive. Now, excuse me if this is rude for you. My apologies if it is. We are not in a prosperity gospel kind of church but I think we could move this way a little bit. Because one of the things our prosperity gospel friends get that so many evangelicals don't get is they at least believe that God is a generous God. And many of us live constantly, we think money, we think scarcity. And then we subtly slip into the notion that God also has scarcity. So if we did, you know, how many of us are living within $200 a month of balancing our budgets? A number of hands in here would go up. How many of us are struggling thinking how we're going to deal with this next 20 years? A number of us would put our hands up. How many of us who are retirement age, as I am, how many of us in retirement age are actually, when the truth be known, worried about what's going to happen in the next 20 or 25 years? We think scarcity. But God is a generous God. And notice in quoting Psalm 112, he says, It is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. So God gives generously, and then we have an opportunity to be generous as well. Notice the cycle of this. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now what's this verse saying? First thing it's saying is, God is the source of generosity. It's not my generosity, it's not your generosity. God is the source of all generosity. 
He is the one who lurks behind it. And notice now how Paul's being a little bit intricate with his image. He's saying that God is the one who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food. And he means that literally. God is also the one who will increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What's he saying? What he's saying is generosity humanly executed is a reflection of God's generosity to us. And so there's a cycle here. There's a flow. When I understand God is generous to me, and then I'm generous to others, I'm actually participating in something much, much bigger than how does this relate to my bank account. It's something much, much bigger than that. And here's where our friends in the prosperity gospel movement actually root so much of their thinking. And you know what? It's here. You can't avoid it. It says it right here. The one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. If I'm teaching the Bible accurately, it seems to me what this passage says is, if we are generous, God will be generous. We don't do it for that reason, but that is one of the byproducts. And for those of us who wail away at prosperity preachers, isn't it terrible what they do? Imagine teaching that if you're generous, God will be generous with you. It says it right here. That there's a sense in which the generosity begets generosity. When God is generous with me and I am generous with others, there's a deep sense in which that generosity cycle comes. We don't do it for that reason, I repeat, but that may be one of the byproducts. It's counterintuitive. I give away and more will come? There's a number of us in this room, including the one speaking, who've actually experienced that very directly. And so that's hard for some of us, but it's pretty clear teaching in this passage. Notice how countercultural this is in 2019. It is so countercultural because we live in a consuming, craving culture, right? Even if we don't have it, we still consume and we crave. And a consuming, craving culture is keep. But a grace-gratitude culture is give. And what a marked difference. And this is why Martin Luther said it was a conversion. If I spend my life craving, and if I spend my life as a consumerist, what I'm going to get into is not a mindset of being generosity, of generosity at others. I will miss the fact that this is all about grace and gratitude, which lead to generosity. And boy, does that ever define a consumerist culture so well. Consumerist craving leads to keeping, and grace and gratitude leads to generosity. And what's the goal of all this? So we'll be rich, so we'll drive a $50 million jet, and here's where some of our friends, it seems to me, are missing the mark. Notice what it says. What's the purpose of all this? To enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Nobody is going to quote the square footage of your house at your funeral. Nobody is going to list off the places you went on holidays. Nobody is going to specify at your funeral they couldn't afford a house. Nobody is going to say at your funeral they actually had three houses. No one's going to talk about that. You know why? Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. And in God's economy, what God is interested in is a harvest of righteousness. And so for me, the question is, with this $10, what can this $10 do to actually facilitate righteousness through my generosity? And imagine having a harvest of righteousness 
Righteousness showing up all over the place in all sorts of different places, in all sorts of different ways, in all kinds of creative ways. When I'm generous, that's what happens. And then notice what verse 11 says. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And there's for those of us who may be anti-prosperity gospel teaching, it's a little bit hard to be anti, isn't it? Because what does it say? That as we are enriched and we gain, we have an opportunity to be more generous. What is a promotion? What is an increase in salary? What is a, a, greater sense of gen, a greater sense of accumulation in our own life? An opportunity to be generous. That's why those of us who don't have a lot of money need to be very, very careful not to criticize those who do. Sometimes even in this part of the world, on the North Shore of Vancouver, people wax eloquent about, oh, you know, all the wealth in North Vancouver, uh, West Vancouver, and it's so, so wealthy here, and people are so wealthy, and they have such big houses and all the rest. The question is not how much you have. The question is how much you give. That's the issue. It's a question of generosity that God is interested in, not the number on the bill. And there are many wealthy people, even people sitting in this room, who give generously. That is the test. The test is not how much you have. And when we understand that, we recognize that the consequences of this, and here I go to this last section, the consequences of this will have results. Now, I want you to notice how this is in such marked contrast to so much fundraising today. I've been to the conferences, I've taught some of these seminars myself, you know, if you're trying to raise funds, what you do is you tell people what the project's for and what it's going to accomplish, and if you give your $10 to this, this will be the return on investment, and this is what will happen, and this is what will occur, and here's how you'll measure it, and here's the KPIs and all the rest of it. Notice what Paul says. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 doesn't even tell us what he's raising the money for, which is stunning. He's a fundraiser. He's not even telling us what the project is. Like, how can you raise money if you don't tell what the project is? Something's wrong with this. What's he doing here? What he's saying is, and look at this verse. Look at the end of verse 14. Through your generosity, this will result in thanksgiving to God. Notice that generosity is closely tied to worship. Giving is closely tied to worship. Even a cap sometimes. We'll talk about, you know, let's have the worship team up, and we have the worship. And then a little sign flashes on the screen and say, you know, the offering will be taken. And it's like, well, we do this money thing over here, and then we do the worship thing over here, and worship is the song, singing, and this other thing is just pass the basket around. No, it's all worship. It's all worship. Because when people give, what happens when people give? There's thanksgiving to God. And so let's read this. And I'm not going to go through it in detail, but let's, let's read it slowly. Look at verse 12. This service that you perform, the giving of money, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people. It does, it does have impact. There are projects that are served by that. But is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Now, some of you may think, you know, that's sort of hyper-spiritual stuff. Who knows what he just said? But I want you to notice the difference between this orientation and so much of the fundraising world now. Fundraising world, sharp edge, tight project, well-defined. Give us the cost. Give us the return on investment. Let us know exactly what's going to happen. Paul doesn't even talk about what the project is here. And what's the outcome? Thanksgiving to God. People praying. 
Other people being thankful to God. People having a sense of connection and relationship. This isn't about fundraising, this is about friend raising. This is about having a deepening of relationships because people are generous. And not only is there a deepening of relationships, but this giving of money is actually linked with the gospel. This is actually what the gospel is about. It's giving money as part of that expression of thanksgiving. And so the foundation that Paul gives here is a powerful foundation that it's not just simply giving my $10, but it's actually giving that in the way that brings thanksgiving to God, that deepens relationship, that increases prayer, and that actually builds the body of Christ. And then he comes to his conclusion. And those of you who are maybe not careful readers of the Bible or readers of the Bible at all may find verse 15 a bit strange. So Paul's talking about money and the principles of money and all the various aspects of money. And then he goes, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And you're going, what? Like, what does that have to do with the price of turnip in Turkey? Like, what are you talking about? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. But one of the things, if you read Paul carefully, one of the things that Paul does when he's talking about a very specific thing we need to do, he doesn't stay pragmatic. He doesn't stay practical. He drops and says, this is way deeper than giving away your money. This is way deeper than being generous. This is about something much, much more important. It's about who God is. God is not a God of scarcity. God is a God of generosity, and we need to be generous. And then you almost get the sense as the Holy Spirit's leading Paul to write this verse, then he just goes, wait a second. If this is all about grace and gift and generosity, Jesus Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And it's almost like Paul has one of those moments of, ah, now I get it. This is actually, when you understand how indescribable the gift was of God giving his son for us, and the incredible generosity of God in giving his son, and it's indescribable that he's given his son No wonder generosity needs to flow from who we are because we don't give our money in order to achieve God's acceptance, but because we are accepted by God, we are generous with our money as an expression of worship and thanks to him. And you get the sense, I don't know what you do in reading scripture, but sometimes I just go, oh, (laughs) okay. So, That card in your hand, that coin in your hand, that bill in your hand, my $10 in my hand, there's so many ways to frame this, isn't there? I go to my financial advisors and I know exactly which account they want to put it into right now because they just told me recently, the money right now needs to go in this account. You're 67 years old. This is where we're going to get the return. Okay, so I know what they're going to say to me. I've got some things I want to buy. We always buy something unhealthy for lunch on Sundays, so we're going to find somewhere unhealthy to go for lunch today, so I'll buy something unhealthy with that. That's the way to do it. You know, you might put it, I've got some tangerine accounts, I might put it in a tangerine account and, you know, get 1.375, a return on investment. It's it's stunning. Uh, (laughs) Might do that, you know. I was watching a video the other day on gold, you know, maybe we should put it in gold. Apparently, that's where we're going to end up, right? Currency's kaput. We're going to go into gold. So maybe I'll put it in gold. That's a, I could do that. But when I read this passage, I find myself not doing this, tight-fisted, keeping it, craving it, wanting to use it to consume. I find myself opening my hand, 
I wanted to be generous. Not because someone's put a gun to my head. Not because somebody's read me data or how far short the budget is or anything like that. Not because of anything to do with that. But I recognize that what God has given me, because this belongs to him, is just one more expression of his generosity, but the indescribable gift of his son is the ultimate expression of generosity. And I ask myself the question, why do you live with scarcity? Why do you live with stinginess? Why don't you live with more generosity? And so let me encourage you. I'm just going to pray for us. Let me encourage you, if you're comfortable, to either put that card in your hand open like this or maybe partially closed. And I'm going to be honest. I'm going to do mine like that because I think that probably reflects my heart right now. I'm going to keep it like this. So you do whatever is appropriate in your hand with your card or your coin and let me pray for us. Father, this is so hard. Many of us are our money. Many of us find our identity in our money. Many of us who have money define ourselves by the fact we have it. Many of us who don't have money define ourselves by the fact that we don't. But I pray through the work of your spirit and through the power of scripture that this passage today will become a mirror in my heart and life, that I won't dip into all this sophisticated fundraising nonsense that's out there now, but will actually look honestly, not at percentages and net and gross and practicalities, but will actually look deeply into your eyes, the generous God, and live my life accordingly. I pray that for all my friends here as well, that you will work with our money in our spirits and in our hearts. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.